trying to make it right These people won't let me go I'm just trying to live my life I just need space to grow I'm just trying to make it right These people won't let me go Let me grow, let me go Let me grow, let me go They should know, they should know They should know, they should know I'm just trying to live my life I just need space to grow Welcome to the Tea with Brie. I'm your host, Brie. Thanks for listening. The Tea with Brie podcast is focused on deep, honest, and vulnerable conversation. Each week, I sit down with a different guest in order to have those conversations. Every week, we'll start with my guest's bio, an intro into how we know each other, and then we'll go into a deep dive conversation about whatever topic they brought to me that week. For this week's episode of The Kettle is Hot, I'm joined by my guest, Virginia Cumberbatch. As a racial justice practitioner, creative activist, and scholar, Virginia's work sits at the intersection of community, equity, and storytelling. Virginia is the co-founder of Rosa Rebellion, a platform for creative activism by and for women of color. She served as director of equity and community advocacy for the University of Texas at Austin's Division of Diversity and Community Engagement from 2016 to 2020 helping to drive the university's vision to become less of an ivory tower and more of a community anchor addressing issues of access and and equity. In 2017, she was appointed to the mayor of Austin's task force on institutional racism and systematic bias. And in 2020, Lululemon's global advisory board for DEI. Given her commitment to disrupt systematic racism and build resources for inclusive practices, she's spoken at South by Southwest, South by Southwest EDU, TED by UWA, University of East London's Black Women's Symposium, and the University of Western Australia's Social Impact Conference. In 2018, Virginia co-authored, as we saw it, the story of integration at the University of Texas. In 2019, she was recognized as a woman of distinction by the Girl Scouts. In 2018, she was honored with a Austin 40 Under 40 Award And in 2016, she received the Anti-Defamation League's Social Justice Award for her work in social advocacy and community equity. She holds a BA in history from Williams College and an MA in public affairs from the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. Hello. Hello. I'm like literally sitting here like clenching my hands and teeth because it's like literally doesn't matter how many times. I get so uncomfortable when people read my bio. <laughs> like, the, the accolades, people. The accolades. I'm just like, let's just let's just talk. This is we don't need to do this. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't mind all the things I've done. Let's just no. I don't even anyway. But it is so nice to be here. I feel so honored to be invited into this space that you've created. Of course, uh, you have definitely been on the list of people I wanted to talk to on the podcast as a whole. But then specifically when creating the sort of like spinoff of the kettle is hot and specifically trying to center the voices of black folks and allies currently doing work um, in advocacy and in allyship. I was like, I have to get her on the show. Um, And now, you know, we were just talking before we got on about like 
big but small Austin is and like your name floating around everywhere. And I'm like, I know, I know who she is. I just need to meet her. So I've been like fangirling about you since last year. So I'm like very excited to, to sit and chat with you today. Well, I, like I said, I'm super honored to be invited into this space and it is so mutual. I think in the last six months, maybe 10 different people have been like, do you know Brie? Do you know Brie? Do you know Brie? Do you know Brie? And I'm like, I follow her on Instagram. That's the extent of our meeting thus far. And then obviously with COVID, um, we haven't had the chance to meet in person, but definitely an admirer of the work you do and the ways in which you are elevating um, important conversations and voices. And so even if it's virtual, I'm super excited to have this virtual meeting. Me too. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you today about this topic specifically um, with, you know, Black women feeling really exhausted, but then also finding our purpose right now in, you know, the specifically the activism circle around Black Lives Matter kind of getting a rejuvenation right now between, you know, the murder of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and everything else that continues. And, you know, a couple weeks ago, maybe a week or two ago, we also lost uh, Garrett Foster here in Austin, who was in ally who's doing really great work and was murdered at a protest. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about that lately of how, how do we balance that? And I know for me, a couple of weeks ago, I just kind of like disconnected and like kind of put down my activism hat, which I guess like doesn't really come off, but you kind of like take a step back and you work on some other projects and get some other things done, but then feeling very guilty about that and feeling like, well, if I'm not doing all these things all the time, am I really doing the work and having to really sit and like read different things of like um, activism burnout is real and, you know, taking some time to walk away and do something else for a little while actually helps in your activism long term. And so, you know, specifically being able to talk to you as a fellow black woman doing work in this space of how are you, how are we balancing the exhaustion, but then also really taking this momentum and finding our purpose during this time? Yeah, I mean, I think it's this um, this duality that has pretty much existed, right, since our um, arrival in this country, which is that, you know, it's really hard as women of color, but specifically within the Black experience to separate our identity as Black women and the work of activism. Because in some ways, our, our lives in its essence is a form of resistance, is a form of activism, right? And surely there are spaces that hopefully we can navigate without feeling like we have to be that person to raise our hand, be that person to call something out. But the reality of America, even in 2020, is that we are having to navigate systems that weren't built for us and don't easily bend for us, right? And so in that context, um, consciously or unconsciously, our everyday navigation of our spaces, whether that is an education space, a space of political, um, a political structure, whether that is healthcare, we are constantly having to create this posture, this disposition of resistance. And that's an exhausting existence to have, right? And I think that is one of the ways in which privilege functions is that you have the ability to show up in spaces, right? To be being completely and authentically yourself and not having to constantly recalibrate or re-examine how you show up in that space. And I think that is oftentimes the unobtainable level of empathy 
that white people um, can't possess because they don't know what it's like to have a space where they can truly feel not just comfortable, but feel like a sense of belonging. And so one of the things that myself and Megan Harding, who's the co-founder of Rose Rebellion, um, have really observed over the past year is that a lot of us were never given permission, let alone, or I'm sorry, we weren't given language, let alone permission to understand the ways in which racialized trauma is a real thing, mm-hmm. right? And so we constantly are showing up for communities, both our, our own and others, right? Without a true understanding of the mental, physical, and spiritual toll that's taking on us. Um, and not because we necessarily put the word activist right in our bio line or advocate or community organizer, but it's just because again, that's intrinsically how we show up in this world. Um, And so I've been really trying to create space both personally, but also create a space through Rosa Rebellion where we're encouraging folks to really take stock of the ways in which they show up in this world and how that can have an everyday um, sort of toll um, on you. Yeah. One of the things that really like sticks out to me is on a previous episode, um, my friend Anna and I were talking because she's a nurse. And so we were talking about, you know, at work when she's in her work scrub, she is seen as like this very educated, high level society member. Um, But then, you know, she deals with racism at work, but she said it's worse it's worse when she's not in her scrubs, right? Like she had created a poster that says, what color am I when I save your life, right? And I think it's a really important conversation that we had around, you know, as Black people, we don't just get to show up as ourselves, right? Like we have to represent every single person who was Black, every single person who was a Black woman. So like the societal pressure of that, of like, if you see me as like this very educated Black woman who speaks well, quote, air quotes, it's like I'm the anomaly, like people aren't expecting that. And that's why microaggressions around like, you know, she speaks so well, she talks so well, she, you know, she's so eloquent. And just those sort of tropes are so, so big. And I, and I always tell people like, I don't believe in microaggressions. The, the, the minimization of, yeah, yeah. The minimization of how the words you say impact me and you get to tell me how they impact me, that, that takes away ownership of how I'm feeling, right? And so I often think about that too of, you know, like you're saying, navigating these systems. And I immediately thought healthcare when you said that because as a Black woman and seeing how the medical field has always treated Black people of, you know, we, they are, it's believed that Black people have a higher pain tolerance. And I always tell people, I have no pain tolerance. So that (laughs) does not at all apply to me. But you know, I, I did a speaking engagement with Planned Parenthood a couple of weeks ago, talking to a lot of, you know, youth and young adults of, you have every right to walk into that doctor's office and tell them the sort of care that you need. And if they aren't willing to listen to you, tell them to make a note of what you asked for, right? Like having to keep track of what, what is going on because we aren't often listened to or heard when we walk into these spaces, specifically in the medical space of, you know, we see how- Just that, I mean, just think about it, like the extra step we have to go to, to track our medical experiences. And maybe that is a more universal experience than we think, right? But the intentionality behind that is because we don't believe we will get the care that is owed to us if we don't. 
And so just thinking about, you know, what seems that, like that, that's not a little thing. Or I was watching an um, Instagram video today and a black man was pulled over and he noticed another car pulled up in front of him and it was a white woman and she got out and she was taping it. And he goes, the fact that she felt a responsibility, an obligation to do that, right, should tell you that and that picture in itself should tell mm-hmm. you the additional um, labor it takes just to make it home. Just to right? exist. Just to exist, just to give birth to a child, which is supposed to be an everyday experience. And yet black women are dying three times as three times more. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I guess for me too, like, you know, I, I was telling the youth when we spoke of, you know, my mom had cervical and uterine cancer and passed from that. My dad had colorectal cancer and my grandfather, my maternal grandfather had brain cancer. And so I'm like very big on like health care needs. It's like something in my brain. And so I told them like, there, as a black woman, I have had to learn how to advocate for myself because of how the medical field sees us. Um, you know, uh, I'm reading a book, the book that um, Austin Channing Brown wrote about like her experiences and how her mom had to be like, whenever you leave a store, make sure you have your receipt in your hand. Like don't shove your hand in your pocket. It's just like all these steps that black people are taught as children so that we can survive hopefully to adulthood. And then the adultification of black children and how, you know, little black boys are seen as men at like age, what, eight or nine. And little white boys are seen as boys to like th- to like thirty, right? Like just like that whole that separation that people who aren't born in our bodies don't understand. And and I think that is another really important part, right? When we talk about the, this language and this ongoing exhaustion, like this has been a part of our lived experience since the womb. So we're talking about as soon as our parent, mother gave birth to us, the, co- the complexities of her experience, therefore my experience as a infant, right, is already being contextualized by the color of my skin. Mm-hmm. Then I go into the education system that was never built for me. The stories shared there, most of my educators, right, were never equipped to educate me in a way that affirmed who I was and the history of my ancestors, right? in some ways telling mythology and like really poorly documented history, right? And then I'm seen as someone who's older, I'm disciplined in a different way. Mm-hmm. I am interacted with in a different way. So like these are, this is throughout our entire lived experience, right? And so by adulthood, we've experienced all these quote microaggressions, but they're really macroaggressions because they completely, um, they completely transform how I'm able to navigate this world. Um, And then if I want to navigate in a way that allows me to quote, succeed and to have certain access and to have certain resources, right? Then there's an additional exhaustion of having to like circumvent those systems, right? Disrupt those systems. And, you know, I think about by the time I got to college, I had experienced all these things growing up in a city, you know, as white as people think Austin is now, right? It felt, you know, just as white, if not more white when I was growing up. And so I had experienced all these things. So by the time I got to college, there was not just a fatigue, but like an eagerness, right? To 
understand the experiences I had had in high school that I didn't have language to put to, right? So even this idea of like racialized trauma, my mother is a, is a therapist and a counselor. She's like, that is such a new concept in that space because even the space of psychology is, is run mostly by white males, right? Mm-hmm. So they hadn't even given us that understanding of how we've been affected. And it's amazing to see by just acknowledging that it exists, right? Just acknowledging that experience is a part of the like healing process And I think also a part of the process of equipping us so that we can, we can continue to show up, right? Not just show up for our communities, but show up for ourselves. Um, And I think that is really connected to like uh, this term that we have borrowed several times from Davia Roberts, who is also a a counselor based out of DC called, and it's just this idea of protecting your peace. And that's something that I definitely have been trying to meditate on over the last few months because there's this tug and pull between the expectations and the eagerness and the request, right, from institutions and organizations and well-meaning white people for us to, like, engage, educate, equip, right? And then, but realizing that we've been doing this work this whole time. And in order for us to be able to still show up, there's got to be self-enabled boundaries, right? About not just, not really how much we give, but the ways in which we give, Mm -hmm. right? And who gets access to that energy and who gets access to that intellectual property, right? Um, And honestly, I broke my ankle this summer literally three days after George Floyd's murder. And in some strange way, I'm, I can't say I'm not, I'm grateful to not have two working ankles right now because I very much would like to be more mobile. But just that like three or four days of recovering from surgery, I think was like self-preservation because mm-hmm. I know I would have been like I know because by the virtue of like then getting back on Instagram and on my email after four days and seeing how I've been inundated and if I had been inundated like that in the moment I, I don't know if I would have been able to manage because it's this interesting duality of feeling like okay this is this is how we show up this is our moment and then this exhaustion and quite frankly, uh, frustration that it took another murder for people mm. to, to show up. And now that they're ready to show up, I need to move heaven and earth in order to show up for them. It is your job to accommodate them so that they can get educated properly. Yes. yes. And, you know, I currently have decided to stay in Austin. I was going to move to Philly, but COVID and life and God and whoever else decided it wasn't time. So I've been doing, I've decided to work for myself because finding a full-time job by someone else is not happening. So consulting full-time self-employed, really excited. But (laughs) so right now, um, you know, I've been like working on the website and my consulting things and letting people know, like I do not only like fundraising stuff and event planning for um, nonprofits, but also like DEI work and public speaking and a lot of these other things. And so the amount of people after doing a couple of panels online with like these celebrity friends that I have and, you know, just the amount of like 
sort of like followers that I've gotten from that and letting people know like the things I post, you are welcome to reshare and look at, look at the highlights, but do not ask me a question until you look through the highlights. Like you have to do that step of do not keep asking, yeah, do not keep asking me the same question when I've already answered it in this and it exists here. I have a whole press page of like blogs I've written, interviews I've done, panels and podcasts I've been on. Like there's so much content with me speaking that there is no need for you to ask me a question until you watch literally all of that. And that's the boundary I have set. Actual work and energy and time. And you know, who has the time for that? And I think that, that in itself to me, right. Mm -hmm. Demonstrates, um, for me, sort of the, the distinguisher between an ally and a co-agitator. Mm-hmm. An ally is like, yeah, girl, you matter. Yeah, girl, I, I'm totally all for this, but not really willing to do the work themselves. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, imagine this idea of there is this system that operates in a way that affirms who you are, right, and marginalizes me. I'm tasked with not only having to navigate that space, but then I'm tasked with dismantling the way in which the, that space operates. Oh, and then you'd like me to educate you on how you should be a part of dismantling mm-hmm. it and hold space for like your emotional fragility mm-hmm. and you know, all of those things. And so, you know, Meg and I joke all the time. We're like, if, if, people would just learn the power of google.com it's a powerful (laughs) powerful tool you know what i mean like at least start there before you tax me and particularly before you tax me without actually wanting to pay for those services Mm -hmm. right and And then also like like, not retain it exactly exactly so you know i think all those things together has made for an interesting moment, I think specifically for black women who do this work. And again, I think sometimes it's hard to distinguish like what is just, this is how I show up in the world versus Mm -hmm. work. But I think, you know, for the most part, we're able to kind of determine, right, who, who's doing that in a capacity, you know, a certain capacity. And, you know, on one end of being super frustrated and maybe slightly resentful that it's taken this right? It took a world universal pandemic for us to be able to have enough um, distractions erased mm-hmm. where all of a sudden Black lives became a priority, right? And transgenderly, like the lives of people of color at large. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I'm being like, you know what? Let's leverage the heck out of this. Let's tap all the resources. Mm-hmm. Let's leverage all of the the capital, right? But, how, you know, again, how do we do that in a way that creates sustainability and creates impact and not just a moment, mm-hmm. right? That, because um, I think what we've seen really come out of this, right, is a lot of performative activism mm-hmm. uh, where folks are like, posted on the Instagram, I tweeted that, hashtag this. And then when you push a little further on like, no, 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 how does this actually show up in mm-hmm. the way you operate? They're like, oh, whoa, you know, check our Twitter page. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't, really that doesn't mean much. Right. Um, I, I, I think... We're, we're certainly in that 
interesting juxtaposition where I am trying to be energized, right, by the urgency around it, yeah. um, while also holding space for not just our own mental health, but holding space for the fact that we're in this for the long haul. So if you want to ride with me, you want to ride with us, you have to be in it for the long haul. Right. And that's why I've been telling people too, like there was one friend who used to ask me something every day and I was like, my consulting rate is this. Um, my Venmo is this and I will take personal check. I will take debit. Like the amount of work. And I tell people like some people, you know, now that I'm doing consulting, people are like, you know, do you think this is steep? I'm like, no, because this is emotional labor on top of my own research and preparing everything. I'm like, but it's also saying, I'm like, if I don't value myself, y'all won't value me at all. Right. So it's this, this, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> been this, this whole thing of, you know, having white friends who, when George Floyd was first murdered, being like, oh, I get it now. I'm like, we've been friends for five years. So what do you mean you get it now? Like, did y'all never once think of the fact that when I leave your house, I am more likely to die than you are? Like, there's just so many, like that whole disconnect from people and, you know, then trying and then them asking us to create space for their emotions. I'm like, no, no, what you're really saying here is that your sadness is more, is more important than my sadness. And on top of me holding mine and trying to make space for yours, I still have to go out and do this work because y'all think you crying is enough, whereas you could be using your privilege in your space to actually make stuff happen. And having those conversations with people of like, I'm going to hold you accountable if you want to be an ally so badly, what does that look like? And like you're saying before, like the performativeness of it. And my friend Brittany and I talked about this on an episode too of performative allyship and all these big companies and Instagram accounts who posted the black square, black lives matter. And then that was it or who didn't post anything at all yeah. and just went about their business. And I was like, unfollow, like there's nothing else for yeah. us to talk to. If, if yeah. you saying that you stand with black lives matter means that you could lose your followers then there's nothing for us to talk about anymore. If yeah. you believe that a complete stranger who happens to follow you on the internet is more important than the life of someone you actually know, we have nothing else to talk about. And I don't have to do that emotional labor to explain this to you why this is so important, right? Like, really being in this movement and in this momentum right now has really just given me permission to let a lot of like people and their shit go <laughs> and like yeah. not have to make space and hold that energy in my body anymore. And, and I think, you know, I've had to check myself a bit on uh, the ways in which I devalue the work by devaluing myself, right? Mm. Recognizing that if if I allow that to be the way in which we interact with each other, if I allow you to undercut my work in some ways by you know asking for exceptions or asking for me to cut my rate, then that has an impact on how you value another person. But more importantly, it it's a demonstration of how much you actually prioritize or value this. Mm -hmm. You're still seeing this as, as, as if the conversation of racial justice and systemic equity is somehow philanthropy. It is not philanthropy. Mm -hmm. It is foundational, not only to the ways in which this country was formed, it is foundational to the ways in which we will survive as a country, right? And so if you don't see that connection, right, that's going to be 
uh, reflected in the budget you assign to this this work, right? And the ways in which you value the voices that you bring into it. You know, that's the same way that I, I strongly believe, do not go and task your, uh, your team members or your staff members who happen to be people of color with creating a, you know, diversity inclusion committee or doing the speaking thing, unless that is reflected in their paycheck or their title. And don't just hire a black person as a diversity hire and then have no other black people around them because that was one of the most exhausting things for me at one of the last places I worked was, no, the last two places I worked, I was the only black person on staff in the constant having to call out when we were post stuff. I'm like, this yep. is problematic. You know this, right? And then me saying something and then being like, well, you know, we felt I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> this does not like, this is not something you get to, to feel when it doesn't directly impact you. Right. Like we, <clears throat> at one of my last jobs, we were trying to decide if we wanted our youth to walk in a parade. And one of our staff members said something that was like very, essentially they said, you know, we feel like queer youth are okay because the president has really been talking about like race and religion stuff. And I was like, do you not think that queer youth of color exist or queer youth of different religious backgrounds exist? So now you've really centered the white queer Christian version of queerness and I've completely left out hard, large groups of people. Like just having to do that emotional labor, like not only did I have to say something, I'm the only black person on staff, I have to now re- after basically show off my trauma so it could be valid and understood and accepted as fact so that white people would understand where I'm coming from. Like there's just so much that goes into being a black person in the professional setting that when companies think they hire, they can hire one diversity hire um, and that be it. And I'm just like, but yeah, just, just that amount of like effort and energy to, to be a black person professionally is just. Well, I think one it's, you know, uh, Rachel Cargill Love. is profound in almost everything she says, but she says, and I'm paraphrasing, she's like, unless you create, um, create spaces of equity for the people of color um, that you hire, you are just bringing those people of color into harmful places. Mm -hmm. So like, if you haven't done the work to prepare those spaces to be a space of equity, inclusion, and like active justice, then you're just hiring people to come and to work in a place of harm, right? And so and exactly make what you're you feel saying, better. Yeah, not just to make you feel better, checkbox, but like even the thought of, you know, I do this a lot in the, the workshops and work that I do, is like even the thought of diversity has been diluted to something that's actually not meaningful without context, right? So the mm -hmm. idea of diversity is not a meaningful aspiration as an organization unless that diversity has true agency and autonomy in the way in which it navigates that space right and then that you've created practices and policies and even like a paradigm of the way you operate that affirms them in a way that's equitable so i would even argue it's like yes there should be more than one black person one more than one latinx person in your organization and company but if you're truly operating from a lens of equity then everyone in that company should be equipped to call out whatever mm -hmm. um, you know problematic um program or story that is being developed because it shouldn't just be resting on the black voices in that space right 
And so like, that's what, what it will truly look like if an organization as a company is operating in equity and has developed this, these tools of like co-agitation where it doesn't take you or me to be hired in order for that to become top of mind or a priority. And I don't think people recognize the emotional psychological toll that takes to one, just to have to make decision pretty much at every turn. So probably at least 20 times a day, am I going to be that person to raise my hand? My mom used to call it, are you going to be that girl? So we have to make a decision. Are you going to be that girl? And if you do have want to be that person in that moment of the 20 times something needed to be called out, having to sort through a, the ramifications of doing that, the additional work you just volunteered yourself for, right? The accountability you're going to have to be to make sure it actually gets fixed. It's like all those things are constant. I, I oftentimes compare it when I, wrote my book, I, you know, I wrote it on the experience of the first black students at the University of Texas. And when I was in grad school there, 60 plus years later, we were having the same conversations of being a place of belonging for particularly black students. I'm like, I want you to consider the psychological impact of going to a school of 50,000 students where 4% of them look like you. What does 4% look like on a campus of 50,000? It means maybe every two days you see a Black person, right? But then more importantly, having to walk past a statue of a Confederate soldier, live in a dorm of a known segregationist and racist. Like, it's constant reminders that you were never supposed to be here. And I would argue that maybe you're still not wanted here. Mm -hmm. And so like when we think about that within the adult world, it's like how many spaces are we having to navigate every day that are reminders of what the world and the city, particularly the city of Austin, how they value us. You know, I-35 is a reminder, which is a highway for those listening outside of Austin. It's a highway that runs through half this country and it was strategically built to separate East and West Austin. Resources, no resources. Good schools, bad schools. A hospital, no hospital. The, you know, uh, the origins of Whole Foods, a food desert. So like these are constant psychological barriers that we're having to navigate as Black people, as people of color in this country. And it is impossible for that not to um, impact not just the way we show up in the world, but impact our minds and our bodies. I think that's all that needs to be said, honestly. You can't top that. So <laughs> uh, I am so grateful that you came on today to talk about this. Um, I'll be sure to link everything that we talked about in the show notes. Um, but I like to ask my guests a final question as a sort of like palate cleanser, leaving us on a high note, making our guests feel great at the end of these heavy conversations. Um, and the question is, what is the best advice you were ever given or what's a piece of advice you would give to your younger self? Great question. That's an or question, right? Not that an is an or. Yeah. That's an or question. Yeah, what is the best advice you were given or what is a piece of advice you would give to your younger self? The piece of advice I'd give to my younger self 
is to live more freely. I think I grew up, whether it was self-imposed or externally imposed, I grew up with this real steadfast sense of duty and um, like obligation. And that expanded everything, social obligation. I gotta be everyone's best friend. Um, you know, duty in the sense of like school, duty in the sense of holding certain positions. And I think it is just now in my early 30s that I am allowing myself to break free of some of those expectations. And from that is not only coming like a freedom that I am enjoying, like mentally, but it is also, I feel like a creativity and like a joy that is coming from me that I'm excited about. Because I think when we think about this work of activism, when we think about this um, work of resistance, like what better way to do it than with creativity and joy? That's it for this week's episode of The Tea with Brie. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Tea with Brie. Send me an email at theteawithbrie at gmail.com and visit the website theteawithbreepodcast.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. A special thanks to Mama Duke for our theme music, and I will talk to y'all later this week. Bye. Bye.